Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 20th, 2011, and my guest is Anat Admadi, the George G.C. Parker Professor of Finance and Economics at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. Anat, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. Uh, our topic today is financial reform, and in particular, some proposals that you have made and ideas you have about making the banking system more stable and focusing on capital requirements. So talk about the idea of equity in the balance sheet of a firm and what uh, a healthy proposal would require compared to what is going on today? Yeah, I think the first thing to really talk about when you talk about capital requirement is what does it mean capital? Because they use this word very differently in banking than anywhere else. And so people get very confused about this. You start having the journalists explain to you that, you know, you first of all, everybody says you hold capital. That's already a big peeve that I have about the word hold. Because what we're talking about is the following. It's critical to think of balance sheets when you think about this. So everybody has a balance sheet, governments have balance sheet, all banks, all companies have balance sheets. And a balance sheet basically has two sides or it's stacked together, one on top of another. And basically one part of it that balances with the other is what you own, what you have, what are your assets. And then against that are basically, so the liability and equity. So these are things that you kind of owe versus the things that you own. Uh, these are kind of claims against the the assets. So okay. these are promises you made to pay out of the assets that will call upon the assets to pay, uh, or the remainder, which is uh, which is equity. So equity is basically the asset minus liabilities, is what we're talking about. So for every bank, what they if it's for the banks, what they all the stuff that they own, which is all the loans that they made, everything that pays them. Uh, and then on uh, the, li the liability side has all this stuff that they owe, so the demand deposits that people can come and ask for, all the money markets, all this stuff, and all the bonds that they issued, various kinds of bonds, short-term repos, thousands of kinds of, of commitments that they made to pay. We call that debt. And that is the debt. And then the difference between them, which is usually a very small sliver in the case of banks, is, uh, is the equity. They call this capital, and they say, and they talk about how much capital banks are supposed to hold, but actually that capital, it's not the banks that hold it. That equity is held by some investors somewhere. Correct. So the holding, when they say banks hold capital or set aside capital or hold on reserve capital or all of that, that's completely misleading. So it conjures up an image of stuff sitting around doing exactly. nothing, which is not the case. But let's go back to the balance sheet and go very, very slowly. So I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a bank. And which is going to be problematic because I have no reputation. But let's suppose I have a reputation and I start a bank. So I take in through my doors uh, cash that uh, people want to deposit. So what side of the balance sheet? That's the debt. That's part of your debt. It's called demand deposits, it's demandable debt. They can Because they can come back and get it. They can come it. back anytime. And that's part of what banks do is they sort of provide that. And they issue these kinds of, of uh, debt instruments that, that on, only banks do, usually. Deposits. So normally when I think of capital as an economist, mm -hmm. handicapped as I am by the fact that the only accounting I know is from uh, a friend who I help pass, helped her pass I her accounting class. Accounting. I don't okay. know any, That's usually bad for <laughs> finances to know accounting. <laughs> okay, so, so help, but help me out here. So uh, one source of funds for me as a bank are my deposits, deposits which create a liability because I have to pay them back. That's right. The other way that I can attract resources that I can do stuff with is um, investors. That's right. People who buy the stock of my bank. Precisely. And that's... They own the They own residual. a share. They own the residual just like the equity of all the other companies right. in the economy. So they have a claim on the, on the cash flow of the profits after if they come. After debt is paid. After... Or dividends. And expenses and yeah. other things are paid. Now, if, for example... Uh, half of my assets are demand deposits, 
and let's say that's $500,000, and $500,000 I raise, as would be the verb, in, in equity among my trusted, uh, greedy, return-hungry friends, then I would, I would have a 50-50 yep. equity debt uh, mix. Is that, right. is, have I said that That's correctly? Right. That's right. So when you say, so let, let's now go to the, uh, so let's go to the other way, or maybe the same way that capital is used in regulatory discussions. Mm -hmm. in, in the current environment, which is ruled by Basel oh, two and two a half or, three, or whatever mm -hmm. at, Somewhere in there. Banks have capital Actually, you know, the U.S. never adopted Basel II. Really? Yeah. It was overwhelmed by the crisis, so they never quite got around Oh, we never to got to two. Like, oh, sorry. We yeah. never got to two. Yeah. Now we're talking about three. Yeah. Now EU just adopted three. So if... Um, yes. Say Basel II. So ba three. Basel II has... Same principle. Yeah. Basel II has capital requirements. Yes. So... What, did that, what does that mean? Let, let me say it a different way. If I'm a bank and I have to keep, quote, 10% mm -hmm. as a capital requirement, what does that mean? So the way they do it is they want to adjust it to the risk of the assets. So they have this system that they created, and it's called, uh, they, they sort of measure how much equity you have, not relative to your total assets in value, but relative to what they call risk-weighted assets. Right. Is this, tier, then, is this tier one and tier two, or is that no, something the different? Tier, the tier one is sort of how much you have. And when you talk about tier one as a ratio, what's the denominator? The denominator usually, in, in all the requirements so far, in Basel III, they're going to introduce some leverage ratio. Well, which we'll is leave going that to be alone a, for now. But the requirements, with the numbers that are talking about, the 4.5 to 7, or the 7%, and the extra SIFI charge, and all of that, that is equity measured in some way, there's also issues about how you measure that, market value, book value, fair, fair value, accounting, marketing to market. So how do, you, what, how do you put a number on that? But the denominator of that is always risk-weighted assets. And so the big issue is, you know, how, how do you figure out what their risk-weighted assets is? How I'm going to come back to weight? that. I'm asking a simpler question. Let's ignore the, 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 the risk-weighted question for mm -hmm. now. If I'm a, a bank and I have to have 10% uh, quote capital, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that they would look at your, at your balance sheet in some periodic way and they would make sure that, that you have that. And what it means is that if you somehow go below that, then they'll start going intervening or something like that. So I have to comply with that requirement. You have to comply with it. Now, now the, the, the innovation of Basel III, which really is a, an important innovation in principle, is that the, the, there's a sort of a conservation buffer. So the idea of having what we saw in the crisis, among other things, is the sort of the requirements themselves can create a certain dynamic by just having to comply to them. So if you always have to just, so the, the buffer cannot be a buffer because you can never run it down. So, so if it's supposed to be a cushion, that is, suppose I have you know, 20% 20, 20 equity in a house. Okay, so okay. I bought a million dollar house with 200,000. Down. Down, down is equity. That's equity, right, that's the same idea. That's equity, but versus you know, being subprime loan or being a highly leveraged bank, you put $20,000 and buy a million dollar house. Correct. That's 2% equity. And then the house value fluctuates, like these assets, like these mortgage-backed securities, right. like all of these things. As it fluctuates, then my, my, I become, if it goes down, I become uh, sort of distressed. I insolvent, insolvent. I can go underwater because my, uh, my uh, assets will be worth less than my liabilities. I'll have negative right. equity. In that case, if I need to comply to capital requirements, I could try to kind of salvage it by selling part of the house. This was sort of the fire sales that we saw, the dynamics of that, where we were sort of deleveraging. In order to deleverage when you can't, in order to maintain 1% of the assets as the assets go down, you need to sell the assets right. quickly. And if the assets are illiquid, that creates a whole dynamics of selling and fire or sales. Or if everyone has everybody the same kind of assets. Everybody's doing the same assets, precisely. And so everybody's trying to sell the same things at the same time. And partly it's to comply with the requirement, partly. And of course, it's, so it creates this sort of deleveraging cycle, kind of vicious cycle that we kind of saw play out uh, among, among other things that we saw in, in the crisis. So the idea 
of a conservation buffer is that you know the, the story that uh, you know my friend Charles Goodhart, who's a banking banker, a banking expert in UK, likes to uh, tell is sort of about the, the taxi uh, cab in the station. So you have a requirement to always have a taxi cab at the station, and when you get there at three in the morning, the taxi cab that's in the station cannot take you anywhere because then there won't be taxi at the station again anymore once he took you right yes yeah so you see the problem <laughs> yeah. here uh, so so basically the idea of the buffer is that you have a, a say a seven percent kind of at normal time but you can draw down on that down to four and a half percent what happens in the, within that buffer is you can't pay dividends you can't you have to conserve the capital when you're in that window because you're not in a healthy situation. You need to maintain, you need to try to strive to get back to the 7%. So let's put the buffer to the side though, mm -hmm. and, and, and I want to get to your uh, arguments, yes. but just to clarify this issue about, and to get some vocabulary, mm -hmm. if I'm holding 10% uh, of my assets in the form of equity and 90% in the form of okay. debt, uh, we say I have a nine to one leverage ratio, right? It depends how you how you define a leverage ratio. Oftentimes they would now they would when they say they say debt over total, they call that leverage ratio nine Basel. So that would be like ten percent leverage ratio. But I mean, equity over equity over. So, sorry, equity yeah. over. Sorry, sorry, equity over over total assets. So so the three okay, percent so that they're talking about in Basel, three percent by the way, three is. S is is equity over total assets. So that's a ninety-seven to three ratio, which is they don't usually do it. I know, but I'm total, doing it that right, way because it makes it. more sense, a little more sense to me. That, that to equity, you're saying Correct. debt to equity. That people measure leverage like that. There are various ways to measure it. It's D over E, D over D plus E. You know, whatever. But when my equity is three percent, yep. Uh, let's go back to the house. That's thirty thousand so, over a million to a million. Thirty thousand over a million. The house, let's say, loses five percent of its value. You're underwater. It's now worth uh, nine hundred and ninety-five, nine hundred and fifty, nine million nine hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yep. And I only have thirty thousand in equity. In equity, are, which means that if if I had, here's the part that's I think confusing for some listeners. If I had to sell the house today at its current value, which is ten percent less than I paid for it. I would not be able to meet right. the loan that that's right. uh, the that's bank what, had. Uh, I could not pay off my loan. So if it's a non-recourse loan, you can actually walk away from the house. I understand. Which, you and would stay. I might for all kinds because of reasons. The house, because you have an option that the house might go up. So it's underwater. Right. Like, like Today. And out of the option and out of the money put option, you still want to maybe wait for the upside. So you still might want to pay the mortgage over time in the hope that I understand. it would go Or up. it's a pain to move. I don't really want to sell right. because so, there's transaction costs. There's so, a lot of reasons. But you might, you might choose strategic. To walk and if away. it fell enough, if it fell fifty percent, right. I might say, pay. "Why do I continue that's to right. invest in so this asset?" So that's a strategic default. Uh, it would ruin your credit rating, but but I might not have one might, anyway. Exactly, but, but it might be. It <laughs> might make sense to foreclose, except if they had the documents, which is a problem. Yeah, another right problem. Now. <laughs> but that's a house. Now, if I'm a financial institution, yes. a bank uh, yes. of some kind, mm -hmm. uh, I have assets of a uh, million dollars that I finance ten percent with equity. That is and investors. This is in the great what? situation, yeah. That'd be ten percent. I have a hundred thousand in in investors that I've raised, and I've borrowed the other yeah. nine hundred thousand. Mm -hmm. The asset goes down. Let's say it goes down. It goes down by fifteen percent more than the than the equity. In that story, as we said just now with the house, it's true. I'm quote underwater, mm -hmm. but it, I haven't sold the asset. I don't mm -hmm. have to sell the asset. The problem becomes that the borrowers, the lenders, excuse me might get an easy because they're what's holding their recourse is that collateral which is now worth less than their claims on it mm -hmm. so they might say i think i've had enough it's time for me to get my money out and i wouldn't have enough of course yep to pay them off then so well so the government so, will come what the government might come to help you correct which is a bailout Right. Well, the government well, it's won't allowed. It's a liquidity support. It it's whatever they call it. The windows will get opened up. Well, they wouldn't come to help me, the the bank. Right. They come to help you, the, yes. the lender. Which yes. is they want you to be able to be paid. So either their is it either FDIC, you know, would kick in if you're really going to become taken over. Then the deposits will be taken care of by the insurance. And, and if I'm an investment bank like Bear Stearns, it might be that the government simply uh, creates a marriage between and J.P. Right. Morgan Chase and Bear Stearns using the justification. Of uh, and and guarantees and the the bad assets because they want because the creditors 
to be happy. To or, be or to create financial stability. We're not going to debate right. what Calm the real down, motivation the is. Yeah, there's a lot of possibilities there. Right. So my question is, um, why? Because we're going to get to your proposal in a sec. Yes. Uh, as a institution, as an investment bank, as an executive in such an institution, I like leverage. Why? Why do I like leverage? Explain to us why. Because leverage, again, as you as you pointed out very very well, there's a lot of different ways to define it. Mm-hmm. But it's clear that, say, between 1980 and 2007, there was a big change. Huge. In 1980, investment banks were, quote, using their own money. They were partnerships. Uh, what are the advantages to being able to borrow lots of money? And uh, why do you think it happened that it changed so dramatically over the last 20, 30 years? Well, um, Start with the advantages. The advantages of debt... Are there? There might be reasons here that we're not completely understanding because actually, when I talk to bankers, I kind of there seem to be like just ways they think about it that kind of don't quite make sense to me. But the, from, from what I see is rational, at least, yeah, on their perspective, uh, are mostly the subsidies associated with debt. So debt funding just in for banks is subsidized through the tax code, which subsidizes everybody's debt. Because of interest tax deductibility, debt so, f- on ho- on housing purchase on, on everybody. Well, not everything because I can't deduct. No, oh, no, corporate, corporate debt. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking I'm about corporations. Yeah. So corporate debt, uh, interest payment on corporate debt are tax deductible. That immediately is the first friction that we talk about in terms of how do you want to fund. There's a ta- there's a tax advantage to debt funding over equity funding. So it's just like right off the bat, when it comes to funding to the economic funding, this way of funding. Is subsidized the debt, in other literally words, promising. In this case, the tax literally, get <laughs> you pay the total available to everybody becomes larger. Which, of course, since the equity takes off the top, the equity benefits the debt holders come at the appropriate, you know, zero net present value to them. So they just get promised what the value of their claims are, and equity reaps the tax uh, sort of uh, shield the, the tax uh, advantage of of debt. So the more leverage, the more tax benefit comes into the into that whole balance sheet. But corporations generally are not as leveraged as banks. That's right. So now you have to ask yourself, what's the difference between a bank and other companies when it comes to the economics of funding? Now, what, what that was basically where I came from, because I come, I was never in banking. I know corp- and teach corporate finance. So uh, what's so different about banks? Why should banks have such a different capital structure than, than the rest of the world? Nobody, nobody has anywhere near this kind of leverage, and nobody almost can yeah, have well, that's, this well, yeah, leverage. That's, and that's part of the point. Yeah. Everything is different. You know, in, in the rest of the world, we talk about trade-offs. We talk about trade-offs between debt and equity. Yeah, there's a tax advantage to that, but you know, there are these bankruptcy costs. Well, who's going to pay the bankruptcy costs? And bankruptcy costs are not the risk of bankruptcy, because if you can dissolve immediately, there's no cost. It's just a change of ownership. But the sort of deadweight cost, the fact that it yeah. would deplete, that lawyers will come in, that it would deplete, and in especially something that other companies are very aware of, there are all kinds of distortions in investment decisions that get made uh, by when equity makes a decision in a highly leveraged Firm. So they start having so the incentives that- to take more risk. They start having what's called debt overhang, so they can't take advantage of good project because nobody wants to come in when they have so much debt commitments. So, all so that's things, a natural set of forces negative. that restricts. And, so, and, 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 what, and what happens as a result of that, as a result, for example, of, of, uh, of companies that have leverage having incentives to gamble with the debt holder's money, it's like up, you know, up we win, down you lose, yes. is, uh, is that they put covenants in. They put restrictions. And so any debt instrument starts coming with a lot of baggage Strings, yeah. of, of, of you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't pay dividend and you can't invest in this and you can't merge. you got to go back to the debt holders because they're obviously anxious about you making decisions with their money. Because we so, have, as we have said many times on this program, uh, equity holders benefit with the upside. Right. They get wiped out, but the upside, they, they get That's a right. big return. Debt gets that. a fixed return. So the only thing they worry about is avoiding the... Precisely. Uh, the destruction of the That's company right. or anything that won't allow them to reclaim their principal. That's right. And as a result, creditors, debtors, are the watchdogs of prudence That's right. in a normal system. Right. It's not the system but we have. not in banks. In yeah. banks, somehow, because so much of the debt of banks comes under an ever-increasing safety net, 
the discipline doesn't work. The what doesn't the work? The discipline of the discipline, death correct. does not work right. for them at all. There are many ways in which, in which you can even understand why, first of all, there's a certain way in which once you're so highly leveraged, it's almost addictive. Like you can never, you're in permanent debt overhang. Nobody, you always want to fund with more debt and you always want to, you, you always have these incentives to take risks, but you can't get out of there by yourself. It's almost an addiction that you just, somebody needs to yank them out of that place where they are with 5% equity or however much into a much healthier place in the spectrum. And that would be a space that we used to have, you know, yes, way correct. back. You know, not where, so way back, where, but 30 right, years ago. Or 50 or 100, you know, yeah. it's not the good old days necessarily of everything, but it's the good old days <laughs> of equity, yeah. you know, With you where, where, you know, where you actually had to worry about things going 25%, you know, below, and it was your loss as equity uh, and managers to bear. So talk. let's talk about the safety net. Yes. Uh, some of which we've talked a lot about in this program, but mm -hmm. let's review it. And I think you have some additional things to add. Why is it so normally in a corporate, normal corporate American corporation, as the proportion of my assets that are financed by de or, or debt rather than equity, that starts to introduce a great deal of anxiety in the form of other debt holders. There's a certain natural agency restraint. problems. Where, yeah. Right. Why is that? What is going on in the bank world that has made that restraint loosened or non-existent? Well, first of all, you have deposits. You have deposit, what? Deposits. Deposits. So deposits are insured with FDIC insurance. So that already takes care of a big chunk of the bank's debt that doesn't worry about anything because right. they... Uh, and so, you know, when you even have models in, in banking that say the depositors are going to threaten to run or something, right. that's not a credible threat not because uh, they will, they have, they're insured to $250,000 now. And in fact, they you go... You get around that too. Okay, exactly. You get around that because you have deposit brokers and, uh, and they place you as much money as you want under under deposit insurance these days. And so the FDIC is there for a large chunk of what, and it's not just that. If you, if you wanna play that yield game and go and have you know, money market funds that also supposedly have you know, buck guarantees and you know, go out there and explore, the minute something seems wrong, there you are back in the deposit insurance uh, world. So all of a sudden the balance sheets of the banks with deposits swelled in the crisis because everybody wanted the safety of the insured deposit. So that's kind of an option you always have is to come back to the as system. An invest, as, as, a an, as a, as a yeah. depositor. As an investor, yeah. Because you can move the money back into the, into the safety net. Very quickly. Very quickly. And all of a sudden, voila, you're insured. Yeah. Uh, and you can go to multiple banks or whatever. So, uh, you, you know, the system is there to kind of make sure that you don't never lose as a, as a, as a depositor. That's true for Bank of America. Mm -hmm. uh, it's true for Citibank right. on their banking side. Let's talk about investment banks. Okay, so what happens now with investment banks is that... Um, to the extent they exist. You know. Well, they don't <laughs> exist, they're all together. So it's universal banks that we have now. So everybody's a bank, you know, banking holding company, Goldman is a bank. Everybody likes to have the access that banks have to, <laughs> to the, the Fed, yeah. discount window, to sure. all these liquidity supports that will always be there uh, or supposedly be there. And, um, and so what, what effectively happened in the crisis, actually, you know, possibly one of the worst things that happened in this crisis, is that the exact opposite of what, supposed, what was supposed to be the lesson of Lehman, exactly the opposite was learned. The lesson was supposed to be that uh, here we are, we're going to let you fail, and we're not going to do what we did with Bear Stern. Instead, they let them fail within 12 hours. It became clear it was a big mistake, probably, or who knows. But in any case, the conclusion was that, they, that shouldn't have, yeah. they shouldn't have let them fail because look what happened. And so uh, the second guessing of that is, of course, large. But the bottom line of that is everybody became a bank. And for the largest one, it is sort of received wisdom in the market, including credit rating agencies and everything in no matter what Dodd-Frank says, that they will not be allowed to fail. They cannot be allowed to fail because that would create all these problems. And, you know, look at Europe right now. And just to, and just to again, review from, from past episodes, uh, the Bear Stearns, and we're, I want to come back to Bear Stearns and Lehman, that, that nexus, but the, the Bear Stearns rescue in March of 2008 um, was a rescue of the creditors of Bear Stearns. The equity holders of Bear Stearns got wiped out. 
Mm-hmm. And so what this continually does, first it allows the government to say, oh, we didn't bail everybody out. Bear Stearns creditors lost everything, right? But what it continues to do is subsidize leverage. It continues right. oh, to yeah. say sure. to the market... Because the leverage doesn't charge the right price. Because it's that, safe. Part of the, you know, usually there'll be a risk premium or, or at least a, a, an asked extra yield because of the risk. So let me ask a question about... Um, the weird world of corporate of of investment bank lending and and debt is a little bit different than than mm-hmm. than the world that you and I live in. Yes, um, a lot of their borrowing was extremely short term. Yes, that is overnight. one day hours. Yes, <laughs> overnight. So what Bear Stearns and everybody else to different amounts, but similarly, what Bear Stearns was doing was borrowing a lot of money overnight using. What turned out to be not so hot collateral, which yes. were their mortgage-backed mm-hmm. securities. Mm-hmm. Um, what was going on there? Why, well, why did it take that form rather than a more? What was the advantage to that world of that kind of? Because I don't understand that. It's a piece missing from my story. Well, the 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 short-term debt has sort of a liquidity to it, a demandability to it almost. So people like it. They like to just place their money overnight and and play with it. They just don't like to let it sit even hours. And so it's supposed to be this self-perpetuating kind of way. There's this renewable debt over short and short. What what basically happens with short-term debt is I think that (coughs) you, you... you always have, we have even models of that, we always have incentives to, it's a sort of maturity rat race that you get. So you always have, by making debt shorter and collateralized, you always have, it, it is essentially a conflict of interest where when you have debt, equity always wants to issue debt that's equally senior or more senior than existing debt because that actually takes advantage of the prior debt that's already, that's already there. They can't do anything about it. It's very similar to taking risk on their back that they didn't. So it basically, when you have some debt in place, you, you always have incentives to kind of take on a little bit more debt, sort of shorter maturity. Why? Uh, I don't understand. Because, because, that, because, because you can get that, because those debt holders will not demand, they feel very secure. So they don't demand a lot of interest. Because it's shorter term. Because they are very senior. At that point. Oh, you mean in case of a crisis, they're going to get it. They're first, because they can pull the money out first. Because they, their claims are, are payable within, you know, their... Sooner? That matters? Sooner, yes. Sooner is more senior, basically. Okay. So, uh, so basically, what, what that, what it creates a situation where you have an enormous maturity mismatch in the sense that the assets themselves are very long-lived assets right. and liabilities are extremely short-term. The short-term funding is very, very fragile because at the minute that these funders have any suspicion that there's going to be a problem right in that little window, they are out. But that's the puzzle, because if you're right, and I make this tell the same story, and this Mm -hmm. has bothered me for a long time, if we're right that the safety net encourages debt rather than uh, equity... Well, there's no other way about it. It must. Mm -hmm. Then why would I be so worried as to only offer overnight funding? Why wouldn't... In other words, one of the advantages. I think it. I think it. It, it's, it supports all form of debt. It, you know, it, it just there's sort of this demand in in the market, just like there is a demand for deposits for this short term debt. They'll they'll do any debt that people want, but as long as it's debt, the key is that it's debt because the, this debt. Once you're promising to pay and you're under a safety net, your your funding cost is is, is cheaper. Right. So you're suggesting. So I'm saying debt of any kind is good. But why did it overwhelmingly take this form? Because that was sort of the way, you know, commercial asset-backed uh, securities and the way money market funds, you know, wanted to work. But the puzzle is why? Because you'd think, well, you wouldn't need to do it overnight but, because there's so much. Why should I work? If the, if, the adva- if the biggest advantage of, remember, we're not talking about six weeks. We're talking about six weeks versus six years. We're saying overnight. So if I'm not worried because I'm going to get my money back because the government's going to bail me out, why do I only, am I willing to own, why is it that the market produced this world where so much of the borrowing lending took place overnight? 
Well, I think people want to want to have access to their funds. There's sort of all these liquidity True. needs, and so you have you know payment systems and businesses that just like that liquidity. They like to 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 work in that way. They don't. They wouldn't buy sort of for not to tie bonds. up. Yeah. They don't. They, so they so they like. There's a lot of a lot of money that wants to be parked for very short time. It gives you it gives you a nimbleness, uh, um, a flexibility. As long as and so that kind of works until it doesn't. So the point right. about it is that it is a very fragile funding system. And that's the problem. It and, and so what we're saying is that if people really like that because they have utility out of that liquidity such as we like deposits and we like to know the money's there and we can get it out, then that's fine. But they can back it up. In other words, you know, do whatever is your business to do at the right economic price. In other words, you know, once you own the downside of that, and you know, and and, and you're not relying on safety nets, then fine. You know. Okay, so so let's go back uh, to your suggestions for the future. So first, just to summarize where we are now, basically we're we're saying, and it's, there's nothing controversial about this at all, that when so much of your balance sheet is debt rather than equity. Small changes in assets, which were impossible because they're so safe, yeah, yeah. but turned out not to be so safe. Small changes created insolvency or bank or impending or even bankruptcy, just stress and, and therefore kind of refinancing problems. And as a result, uh, you get credit freezes. You get we got the problems that we had, and now to prevent that, I would argue that we should stop. We should get rid of the safety net. Okay. Now, so you're going to take you're going to take a different approach. You're going to say we're stuck with the safety net to some extent. I'm going to reduce it. I'm going to reduce. Okay. Tell it. me what you what, what should we so do to reduce I, the next the probability the, the, of the next the, crisis? The way in my mind, the most cost effective, the most obvious, the simplest, most direct way to address not just one problem but multiple problems that this system suffers from, is it would reduce the safety net. It would improve the kind of types of decisions that 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 are made. It would shift the risk where it should go. All of those things. Take is, out the distortions. Is all of the, a lot of distortions all at once and sort of say, you know, just align everything better is to dramatically restructure that sort of side of the balance sheet, the funding side. In other words, there are proposals, the Volcker rules and, and, and ring fencing and breaking, uh, you know, what Honig is saying and all that. That is on the asset side. Break them, split them. This Make way them smaller way. so smaller, that we could, all in theory, things, we, would, we could then let them fail. Right. But then they'd be, you know, if you have a lot of small ones and they're highly leveraged, they still be interconnected and they can still domino effect fail. What are you going to do? So, How you, are you going to measure the key, it? The key first, the, the key thing first is to structure. So effectively, the change that we're proposing is a very simple change to the system, which is essentially reshuffle the claims in the economy. Everything is still held by the same end investors. But what we're doing is there's a lot of sort of risk capital and equity capital that's out there. And there are all kinds of debt commitments in this market. So if you think of the big picture, what we're saying is there's too much debt-like stuff and too little equity-like you know, claims in this financial system. Sure. We need to make that system owned and funded by a lot more equity. There's much capacity if people need to for all kinds of debt, maybe, you know, to be issued by lots of incredibly well-capitalized, you know, entities out there. You know, Apple can effectively issue treasuries. They are so safe. They have our 100% equity funding in, in Apple. They, you know, Bobo likes to say they have 150% equity funding because they also own some debt. People owe them, so <laughs> they, they have... They, they cannot fail because they hardly owe anything, uh, you know, in a financial uh, claims sense. That's a lot of companies. I mean, the average company publicly held is 70% equity in this economy. Here we have 95% debt, you know, 5% equity or something. So the idea would be that uh, if the safety net weren't there, if we didn't subsidize debt, firms would naturally, through the marketplace and their own self-interest, be forced to be much less leveraged right. in the financial sector. Maybe not 70%, but it's a financial sector. Look 20. at REITs. Look at, at, at real estate investment trusts. They have about 30% equity. They okay. don't have a safety net. That's just a benchmark. Yeah, no, that's a nice point. So the argument would be uh, we, should, we should have higher equity requirements mm -hmm. for banks. Mm -hmm. Now, isn't that what we've had all along? 
What do you mean all along? Oh, the whole Basel one. The numbers Basel. are tiny. Okay, so you're suggesting a, di a, a different... A whole different order of magnitude. I mean, they okay. don't barely get to, to two digits, and even that's based on risk-weighted assets. I'm talking about even sort of adjusting for risk in some fashion. Uh, so obviously, you know, balance sheets have to be somewhat monitored for risk-taking on the asset side. But, you know, sort of based on where, where we are today, you know, I don't see, I will begin to see the social cost of having, you know, 20, 30% or a range that's between 20 and 40%. Gene Fama said, you know, 40, 50% sound good to him. No problem. What's the problem? You know, you know. Well, we know the, the problem, of course, is political. So let's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course. <laughs> but of you course. mean economically, economically, financially. No, yeah. he, that's what he meant. He meant like, you know, that seems like a healthy system to me. People own their decision. Let them go. So let's talk about some of the criticism. So that's, there's two issues of course, there's political and economic. Right. The political issue being, which of course are going to get tied together, political issue being that, strangely enough, the banks don't like that kind of idea. <laughs> um, and in fact, in the current world we're in, where Dodd-Frank is sort of enforced, it's not fully fleshed out, there's already been, I've seen stories that Barclays changed the way they define something because, quote, they didn't like all that capital sitting around. Sitting around, yeah. Now, now, <laughs> trapped. Trapped. Somebody's tied trapped. up, That's like whatever. Imagine a little cage right. and a capital. There trapped. are all these metaphors. But I don't understand, uh, and, and we've got a, we'll put it up on the web. There's a really nice uh, slideshow uh, uh, presentation that, that Anat put together. Uh, called some medicine for crisis prevention. I have other slides. And there's we others. Can discuss which ones you want. And you have, since then, this and is there's January, technical papers yeah. why bank equity is not expensive. A paper with Demarzo, Howick, and Flatterer. But the, it, we'll put those up. We'll put links to those. But let's talk about this tying up, not going, not working idea. Um, and I want let's put it in the context of of Bear Stearns and Lehman. So my claim, and some people agree with this, not everybody, is that. By it, it, it's not the failure to rescue Lehman Brothers creditors that was the problem. It was the decision to rescue Bear Stearns. That when the government did that, when the Fed did that, and then orchestrated the marriage mm -hmm. of Bear Stearns and J.P. Morgan Chase by guaranteeing the toxic assets of Bear mm -hmm. Stearns, they set a signal to the market, which was a very powerful signal that said, you know, if this happens, don't worry. Now, I've tried to look at with modest success, uh, not much meaning. <laughs> uh, what happened to Lehman Brothers between March and September mm -hmm. of 2008? Because the standard, if Bear Stearns had been allowed to go into bankruptcy, if it's all its creditors had been wiped out, or had or to take a serious haircut, to, right. I, my presumption is, is that Lehman would have had to continue its operations in a different manner. In particular, uh, when Lehman uh, failed, uh, Reserve Primary, a money market fund, broke the buck, which means they could they did not have enough assets to cover their promises, at least, well, at, at least at, if they promised a dollar. Right, which is a little bizarre, because why would a money market fund be lending money to a firm that is as risky as Lehman? The answer was obvious, because they were getting a good yield. But normally you would say, but the yield's not worth it. But they thought, well, hey, we're probably going to get rescued. So my question is, what, this is a practical question, what could Lehman have done in those months if they wanted, if the government had come in, let's, this is not the world we lived in, but if the government had come in and said, you know, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have rescued Bear Stearns. And we're going to impose unilateral, you know, without legislative authority, a higher capital requirement on you because you look like Bear Stearns. Your balance sheet is way too leveraged. Your assets are way too risky. And I want you to change your equity debt ratio. What actions could they have taken? The one critical thing that they should have done, and this was true for all the banks, and we know that now. That is so in our face. It's crazy. From 2007 on, they should have stopped paying those dividends. That was criminal that they were allowed to pay so much dividends through the crisis they were allowed banks were allowed to pay dividends in this country until 2009 so what that meant was they, even they, though they, they were really depleted their equity right there they were and dividends are payments to, to equity. equity holders so that reduces the amount of equity that's there if you retain your earnings that's equity that's money they have, that belongs to the equity that backs up the debt which is exactly what they don't want to do so they had any dollar in dividends is a dollar that can't back up the debt 
Okay, so they, that's one thing they could have done. Immediately retain the is the easiest way to raise capital is internally. How much would that have... I haven't looked at those numbers. Really, there are papers that actually looked at, at the dividend payments, you know, over the decade before, and it's even, you know, 2007 and more. And I wrote okay, that's a number of pieces on the dividends because this was really one of the worst things that happened this year was that the banks were allowed to pay dividends. But the standard phrase that is used in this situation, which I think is mm-hmm. related to your ideas, they needed to, quote, raise more capital. Yes. What's the physical, what's the logistics? What does that mean? Issue okay. stock? Let me, let me how say. How would they do that? Yes. So Which is the same question as how do we go from the world yeah, we're yeah. living in now to your world with okay. more equity? Okay. So let me speak to that. The first thing is really to retain equity because, you know, there, there are earnings now and they keep wanting to pay them out. And that's exactly what they should be stopped from doing for a while because the easiest way to do this is, is not to go back to the equity markets, but to just retain what you've got. Okay. The other thing is to raise more equity. What you need to do is to uh, basically do a rights offering, meaning you know you tell you you basically offer more equity to your investors at a certain you know potentially at a discount and 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 raise the money from your current uh, equity, or you go to the equity markets. Now, what might happen as a result if you retain your earnings? Or if you want, go, want to raise more, especially when you're already in sort of a debt overhang, yeah. maybe your stock price might go down. Right. And it's, that's one of the things they really hate. But the only reason for that, the only reason for that, if we don't change anything else, we don't adjust the taxes and all of that, and of course we are trying desperately to remove the, the, the implicit guarantees as well as we can, but this is a way we can do it. Right. You lose some subsidies. You what? You lose some subsidies. From? From having less equity to having more equity. Some understand. Of the safety net and tax bank benefits are lost. We're pulling Correct. away subsidies from an industry, basically, and they hate it. They but, kick and scream. Yeah, but how do I? Who's going to buy my? No, but who's going to buy my? At the price, anybody. In other words, it's the same and investors that own everything. You know, they, they sure at a low it's, enough it's, price, it's people will hold it. Sure. I mean, you just you have to offer it at the right price. The, you, we have to remember. But isn't my the, equity going to go down potentially? No, the, the, we. Look, in the bigger economy, this is nothing. I mean, the adjustments are minor. These are reshuffling pieces of paper because people are holding equities. People are holding... Imagine that the bank... You know, the question is, what will the bank do with the extra equity? What will they do with it, right? So what will happen to their asset side? Well, one thing, they can lend. If they have good lending, they could lend, right? So they can complain that they can't lend with equity. So that's that's the, the most ridiculous thing. Now, if they can't do that, let's imagine, start experiment. Well, i got to stop you there because this, I think, is, is the most central okay. insight that I think Everyday people in this economist sometimes struggle to understand. Okay. Again, where the, are the equity going to come from? No, 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 no. Simpler. The, they don't put the money in a in a in a box and bury it in the ground. No, no, no. That's the thing is when you invest the money only in the house, is, it's in the house. The only difference is, is where whether the you promised money and how it's right. It, the only difference is you you're funding the same thing. You're doing the same thing on the asset side. You're doing the same thing. You can do the same thing. You could. You yeah. can do the yeah. same thing. I'm not restricting you. These are not liquidity requirements. They're not reserve requirements. I'm not restricting the asset side at all. I'm not touching what you do. You do what you find value in doing, supposedly. Right. Creating value, okay? What I'm only changing you- is the way you fund those investments. The way you fund those investments, instead of promising people, just have them join in as equity. That's all. Mm-hmm. That's all we're doing. It's the simplest Simplest thing to do. It just says, why only 5% of your investments funded this way? Why not 25? And it's a crazy situation. Of course, it would change what you invested in because you'd have to convince people of the merits of it in exactly. a different way. Exactly, and then you'd make better investment. Yeah. The whole point we're making is that, that, you know, short of saying, you know, quite the opposite of saying that this would restrict lending, it would make lending better. Not every loan is good. We saw subprime loans that were yeah. not good. So we want good lending. We just don't want any lending. So credit booms, uh, you know, yeah. are not necessarily totally good. With you. So basically what we want is we want economically appropriate lending. So, stepping back to my earlier point, uh, the, the last, oh, I don't know what it is, 20 years of, of bank regulation, which innovated, mm-hmm. I put that word in big quotes, yeah. uh, the kinds of capital, yeah, yeah. That there were different yeah, yeah. ratios. Let me what you're really that. saying is we need to put, create a much larger number uh, different. as a minimum yep. for how... In a range, in a big range. A big range. There. That's a big range between, oh, you know, and, and, and in that range, you kind of let it suffer some losses and you build up capital so you don't let them pay dividends when they are between, you know, in my books, I don't know, we have to create, we have lots of 
challenges in terms of how to implement it and, and all kinds of details there. I never get there because we're still at the level of, you know, a lot Making of nonsense, case, yeah. you know. And, but, you know, say I'll dream up numbers, you know, they'll say they're arbitrary, but let me tell you something, the Basel numbers are very arbitrary of too. Of course they are. So yeah. they're completely yeah. side, no, political not processes, it's not, not science, science, not science. So, so say my numbers were between, you know, 25 and 40% or 35%. In that range, you know, you don't pay any dividends. And then you, you can go a little down and when, the, you know, when you, when you build back your, your capital, then you're healthy and you can, you, can go, you can go about doing everything you do. What will happen to the size of banks? My point. Well, my point is they'll get to the natural size. Yeah, they'll that's be smaller. That's driven. okay. That's, that's, and that's how companies' size is determined. So yeah. I'm not regulating size. I'm first regulating ownership structure. Yeah. So uh, going back to our, the, the Lehman example, or mm -hmm. any distressed bank, or making a transition from yeah. the current world to the world that you're suggesting, the other way, of course, is to sell assets. Correct. And, and hold the... Yeah, and yeah, you could do that. And, you know, if, if assets are now just trading assets that are just anybody could hold them, then there's no reason for these banks that are under the safety net to be the ones that own them. Yeah, but I, actually, I'm, I'm not sure what I said is right. So... If, if you... One if way I, to satisfy... So, so, so say I have, I, have, I have a fixed amount of assets and I have a, a certain amount of equity and I have debt. I could sell assets to pay down some debt and keep my that's equity. That's what I could do, yeah. And so that's one way. So in our paper, we, we have three ways to, to conform to capital requirements. One Don't is, pay the dividends. One is... No, no, no. I'm saying just statically. Statically oh. first. You, you start with a particular balance sheet. You have 5% equity. One thing to do to have to have more equity as a fraction is to scale down. So that's what they right. say they would do. Supposing that all their assets are so valuable that they would have them, then then they tell you that credit will go down. Yeah. The point, by the way, about that is banks are not the only ones who lend, and they don't have a monopoly on lending. And I don't mind that anybody else lends. Well, I'm on now your... hedge funds lend. Now peers to peers lend. There's all sorts of lending that's better funded than the banks. So it's, they don't have monopoly over lending. Well, People but... who are not systemic can lend, and there's no restriction on lending. But I think as you said. Where somewhere it's something I read of yours, that's a feature, not a bug. I mean, <laughs> there's too much lending. Uh, potentially, I don't anything. know. But right now, there is not lending. Right now, I think we are in a credit crunch, but it's because they're highly leveraged already and because they prefer to do other things, so the risk weights can distort it. Because what happens is when you have risk weights, for example, sovereign debt was zero risk weight, AAA securities, zero risk weight, as if they are riskless. Right. Well, we know that's not true. So when you measure the risk relative to risk-weighted assets, and certain assets get zero risk weights or very small risk weights, then you are attracted to them because it allows you higher yeah, leverage. Sure. And so you, lending is sort of fully charged by, you know, yeah. by their language. So nowadays in the U.S., what do you see? They don't want to make business loans. That's too much trouble. That's, you have to monitor them. You know, that's too much work for them. What they like to do, they go to municipalities. There's lower risk weight probably. That's the equivalent of going to sovereign debt. Yeah. They go, they, they invest in hedge funds now. They woo hedge funds. I have lots of stories about that. Banks, they just, because they have so much, much cheap money right now, they don't know what to do with it. But they have, let's talk about that maybe, I don't know, we might not want to get into this, but, because I'm not, it may be off the track, but it seems like it's not. The banks right now in the United States are holding very large excess reserves doing nothing with it. They're right. not buying municipal bonds. They're not. Well, they're doing, they're trying to buy things that well, they're buying yield stuff. Yeah. And, but there's a I'm lot not, of money doing. Going back to our question about sitting around, they literally have money sitting around. They might, uh, but right now the banks in the U.S. have all kinds of lurking issues. They've got a lot of problems with second mortgages that are not recognized. They got all kinds of issues. You know, there are loans that are not performing. That they are thinking that the you know the housing uh, the federal uh, housing authority would cover, which you know Deutsche Bank got into trouble about the same as the same assets that the Federal Housing Authority said they will not cover because they don't qualify. So you think some of the uh, some of the reserves of are being held as as a cushion against all the, the disasters and, and also the foreclosure papers that they don't have which are still lurking there. Yeah. So they have a lot of things and they have some exposures in Europe and and all kinds of things. Now what are they doing with the assets? I mean, you know, again, it depends on on sort of the capital. I don't know. I I am not an accountant. So I actually don't look. I people who have looked at that, who I've talked to, think that there's, that there are, you know, there are some troubles there. And, you know, there the, are the all kinds of investments you see them do that make you think what's going on, you know, those are trading assets that, you know, yield something and have relatively low risk weights, or why are they doing this or that? So I'm let's come sure. back to your idea. Because they expand globally, of course. Too. Let's come back to your idea, which is, um, which I like, one thing I like about it is it's simple. Simple, yes. It's simple. simple. Um, the risk weights also 
complicated, complicated. formula and also they give them a lot of latitude to calculate things based on their own risk models which right, is which, a which is implication to, to manipulate the So for those of us who are worried that the financial system is a bunch of cronies who are manipulating the system to their advantage, what are the odds that a simple idea like this, which is politically, even though uh, challenged by the crony problem, is dramatically easier, dramatically more credible to me than my my preferred solution, which is stop bailing out creditors. Well, right. I can talk to that in just a few minutes because I know about resolutions. Oh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things that Dodd-Frank did and one of the things that really probably is a good idea in general, although you really don't want to rely on it, and that's what, you know, Sheila Berry is saying, you know, we're going to resolve, we're going to do this, that. FDIC is very good at resolving small banks. Resolving a city is going to be a mess. First of all, and deciding when to start doing that process is already challenging. How do you get your hands around a $2 trillion bank to you, know you mean, when they're when right? When you say a city, you mean a city bank. City bank, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, or, or any of these banks. In other words, just, just essentially doing a bankruptcy process to them that's somehow better than a bankruptcy process. It's you're a talking about the, I mean, resolution authority. Yeah, we we um, I interviewed uh, Vincent Reinhardt, who made the observation mm -hmm. that the only creditors that took a haircut in the in the mess, the only ones were I think uh, it was either Wachovia or Wamu. I can't remember which one, but they went through FDIC they, and and they were right. the only ones. Everybody else right. got all the That's money, right. hundred cents uh, on so the dollar. So all the hybrids the and everybody was promised anything got it. So all the cushioning that was not equity was useless. So and, and, and so the whole notion of loss absorbing debt, you know, now you're talking about debt that, you know, again, as you said, you know, what's the upside? I mean, you know, they just, they get to lose and they're not going to like it. You know, there are legal problems with it, huge legal problems. If you have a, a global bank, legal systems are very different in different countries. Doing a resolution of a bank that has, you know, a hundred countries or 70 yeah. countries you we just and can move the money between countries we're not at a place where we can do that and we tried this easily. before we had fiducia fdicia which was supposed to be a takeover by the government of the management of a bank that was in trouble mm -hmm. and it wasn't used because it was politically unattractive well, but to it's, enforce it's, it. it the banks have grown so much and become so complex that it is just we just have to really focus on prevention, basically, and you know the, the, it's very important to to have the, the the sort of the to to not have the the just bankruptcy as being the only sort of yeah. way to go. So, so resolution is really great, and I think the FDIC is the best agency around in terms of you know worrying about taxpayers, uh, the best. And so they, it's 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 good that they got to play here, but they're not really nobody is really in a position to be able to handle that very easily, uh, you know, in a systemic event, to have multiple failures potentially or distress. And, you know, the, 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 the banks saying, oh, just give us assessments, we'll pay for our own resolution. That's exactly when you can't give them assessment because yeah. they are themselves probably bleeding anyway. That's when you give them TARP. You know, that's when yeah. you start supporting their capital. You, you know, it's not the time for them to start paying for each other's resolution. So all of these scenarios, you just really, you know they're very problematic scenarios and there's, all the resolutions take a lot of time. Meanwhile, the system is frozen, you know, all of that. And so a government, no, a government a, a, you know, all the, the <laughs> read my lips, I won't bail you out, yeah. nobody believes. Right. So the problem is, you know, that they probably will change the law and find a way or whatever. So what kind of reaction have you gotten from your proposal? Your idea? I have to say, it depends what, where you're talking in this world. Uh, I mean, the best people on this, although they have their own politics, is in the UK. And the UK, and the, the best people in the space of the Western countries is Sweden, for example, somewhat Switzerland. But uh, the UK has everybody focused on this. Now, they have bigger and dangerous banks, and they, Ireland is nearby, so they yeah, are scared. But, you know, for our banks to say, oh, it's got to be a level playing field, let us be as big as them, or whatever, that's not nonsense. a good thing. Oh, and in nonsense. this country, in this country, Silly. who cares, you know, precisely as Sheila Bear said, it's not a national objective that our banks can go playing against some other banks. What's I, in it for me? It makes no <laughs> to, sense to back them up no. when they, you know, first they own their decision, then I'm happy for them to go compete. If, they, if, they, if, they're, if there's no safety net, then, they, then I'll cheer them on. 
you know. But but if it's a safety net, then I care that they don't go to a hundred countries to play around and get the upside and leave us with the downside. Much so we that. care. So in this country, I'm uh, very sorry to say, it's been more than a year, and virtually, I mean, you know, now occasionally I would get to talk to a few people, but it was a wall, a wall that nobody wants to hear this. No, because. They like to play, and their uh, it, current it, system It has been very, very frustrating getting through. Very, very frustrating. You know, even the newspapers, now the Wall Street Journal all of a sudden, you know, is in favor of this. But they certainly did not take my op-eds for a while. <laughs> well, there they could be a lot of reasons it. for that. Not, it's yeah, a hard They world. don't give you any reasons. <laughs> no, I know they don't. <laughs> you might not be because they don't like it. Whatever. <laughs> there was no... I, I, I stopped wasting time on that because I wasn't getting anywhere, you know. But you're but, saying they have... Nobody, there was no way to get through. But they're more they, interested now than they were before. Uh, there's a little more pressure, a little bit more in this country, a little bit more uh, to, to listen. But the, the, the truth of the matter is there's not been serious engagement in, in exploring, you know, what, uh, what, what we're saying and whether it makes sense or not. There hasn't been in the whole year of, of doing this. Yeah, uh, I'm, well, I'm not, I've, not, I've been unhappy with the level of engagement that uh, I've seen. Now, the problem is that... Uh, I don't remember if I mentioned this on on the uh, program before, but you know, somebody asked me the other day, <clears throat> wondering why uh, this was a prominent um, international bank person. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, "You know, why is it that that the banks remain so politically influential despite their lousy performance?" Precisely. And I think, well, I think the answer is the Willie Sutton answer is it's where the money is. So it's a little bit of a frightening it is. Ponzi scheme it where is. the government sends money to the financial sector, the financial sector gives it back to the politicians, yep. and they're scratching each other's backs. Yep. And it's it's not a partisan issue, unfortunately. I wish it were. It's, it's a bipartisan it's issue. True. Across the board. And what really disturbs me is that outside of our profession, I'll, I'll call our profession academic, finance, and economics, um, Outside of our profession, most people are disgusted by it. We are, to some extent, not me and you, but academic economists have been the cheerleaders for justifying this last two years of, of subsidy. And the average person is disgusted by it, and yet the political power only moves in that one direction. And I don't know I, what we're going to do I, about I, it. It's probably better that we got to the end and I don't get to talk about some of these things because I've been also disappointed with some some of the academics just not not speaking up and just because in some cases it's just you can you can be heard if, if somebody wants to hear something and you give them what they want then they'll want to hear you oh yeah no, I think that's a huge, so, huge part of the problem uh, so you want to be a player exactly you want to be a player you don't you want to argue and you don't want to fight and it's not fun to be contradicting and this industry has been way too involved after what they've done. Yeah. They, they, they are not the ones, I mean, I... Well, you know what... I, the, you, you, know, you know, there are a few ex-bankers who are very honest. Yes. Look at John Reed. Look at Herb Allison. These people are going to say it as it is. Because they're not on the... Precisely. <laughs> precisely. Precisely. Yeah, well, I, you know... You know, you know what actually sums it up? I, I, I mean, I've thought of, of versions of this before, but this moment really crystallizes it for me. Uh, it's called Dodd-Frank. What a of all the people to champion the reform are the people who Dodd and Frank who helped create to a large extent a huge chunk of the problem, and the and the the fact that they had not just a seat at the table with those bankers who should have had no seat, no voice, should have been shut out of Washington. Exactly. Is, Go away. Is, we'll get back you, to you, you later. You've misbehaved. <laughs> you know? Right. We sh we gave you candy. And and you now are going to have to go exactly. play by we'll yourself you, for a while. We'll tell you what when the you rules come are back, later. Yeah, we'll tell you you come back in the room. They're sitting at the same tables again. They are testifying all the time. I was sitting right here, steaming at you know, J.P. Morgan executive going before the Congress, and here I am in California. I have more sensible and less conflicted things to say. Yeah. And he gets to go testify. You know how does that make any sense? Yeah. Well, it's the um, yeah. it's so the world so works right now. It's it's really very frustrating. So what can I don't know. I mean. Speaking is the thing to do. Well, we try to spread the word with programs like these, but of course, uh, my view is that anything that could curtails the discretionary power of the Fed and the Treasury is a good thing. And although that's unlikely to happen for all the reasons we're talking about, there is more political momentum in that direction than ever before. 
And I think that's a good thing. I, I just want to say one thing. I mean, there are a few things in Dodd-Frank that have that are sensible. Okay, I think in principle, you know, the the consumer safety uh, the is is. A good thing, I think. Okay, I disagree with you, but that's okay. But uh, I think you, there's, a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of information. There's a lot of information that I mean, I I've seen, you know, even some forms that are, that are, you know, supposedly supposed to inform people and really confuse them about no about doubt. that. So there, there there are things, you know, when Elizabeth Warren said, you know, there's more information about toasters than about financial contracts. I think that there there was a point there, uh, and and there 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 is consumer protection that you can do there that that. As she's been trying to argue for a year, does not necessarily hurt bank, but they just instinctively fight anything. So uh, who knows what what what's right there? I think Office of Financial Research, in principle, could give information because I think that you right know, in theory, sure, in theory, more information's good usually. usually. Exactly, it's hard to fight <laughs> against it. But you know, again, I don't, I'm not that optimistic that it will do uh, what it's supposed to be doing. Meanwhile, I I, I agree with you that it create. It, in terms of what I'm talking about, what Dodd Frank did is it gave it created this FSOC, this, this FSOC, Financial S Systemic Oversight Commission. You know, uh -huh. so this was basically the group of all the regulators to monitor systemic risk and create capital requirements. And all that. The problem is, I mean, so so in principle, the law did not say how much capital requirements should be. It delegated it to this group. So the only issue is, get, are they doing anything? I guess it's going to get a lot of attention. I guess it's going to be doing the attending. Uh, the exactly. Banking industry. So, so, so <laughs> this particular group of regulators, if they are not going to do it, then it's useless to have delegated it to them. Well, certainly agree with you there. So that's where I am. My uh, guest today has been Anat Admadi. Anat, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. You're welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.